0: Welcome. You're listening to the Camino Church Podcast. This is Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Twice a week, our host will dive deep into Scripture, giving you a convenient way to stay in the Word of God. Whether you're driving to work in the morning or cooking dinner at night, we're glad you're here and we're glad you're listening. Let's get started. Well, Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us again for another Camino Church Lessons Podcast uh, as we continue journeying through 1 John and uh, determining what the Word uh, said when it was written and what it says for us today. Uh, We're glad you're here. and We hope that uh, this section of the podcast is equally as enjoyable and informative. Hope that you are getting so much out of this. If you're getting half of it, half out of it, how much we're enjoying it, then you're doing extremely well. We're in 1 John chapter 2. We left off right at verse 18. We want to pick up there. and We're going to finish chapter 2 in this session of the podcast uh, so we can keep moving along. There's some good stuff here, so let's jump right in. If you remember last time, we talked about this idea of the last hour. So let's read verse 18, and we're going to come back right to that point to make sure that we don't lose that concept and the context that it provides for what John is getting ready to say. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But by going out, they made it plain that none of them belongs to us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And you know that no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Everyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is what he has promised us, eternal life. There's a lot going on in here, and we're going to touch on some of it. Uh, we may not get deep on everything, so make sure that, again, you've got a good study Bible and you are using that for your continued studies into the Word. So John starts out this segment with that, that uh, very um, affectionate reference to the people who are following him with children. Uh, It's a very touching thing. He wants them to know that he cares for them. He's getting ready to admonish them a little bit. But he doesn't want them to think that this is uh, a berating, if you will. Uh, This is a loving correction on his part. He says, it is the last hour. And if you remember, we talked about this last hour, the last days, the last times. And we talked about the difference between chronological and theological last hours. Chronologically, chronologically. When this is written, it is not the last hour. There have been thousands of years that have passed basically since this time. Jesus can come back tomorrow. He can come back in a hundred years. He can come back in another thousand, a million, whatever. But chronologically, it is not the last hour. But theologically, it is. Because theologically, everything has been done that God has in his plan until Christ's second coming. All the prophecies, all the histories, all the judges, all the kings, even God made manifest in Jesus Christ, uh, who has gone to the cross, who has been crucified, who has risen, and who has conquered death and the grave. All that has happened. There is nothing that is left theologically except for Christ to come back. So, that is true that it is the last hour, but it is not a chronological last hour. And that is the context for what he's getting ready to say because he's getting ready to talk about a sign of the last hour. And he jumps right into, in this same verse, that there are antichrists who are about and around and who are teaching, they've already come. And we want to make sure that we understand what John is talking about here because now that I've thrown out the term antichrist and I threw it out in the plural, antichrists, because that's what John said, let's clarify what's going on. In so much of our end times study, which we would call eschatology, the study of the last days, there it is filled with this concept of an Antichrist who will come along and who will oppose all that God has done and who will create evil, more evil, if you will, in the world. Now, let's start by understanding this. The actual word for Antichrist only appears in John's epistles. You will not find it in the Gospels, you will not find it if you go back to Daniel. You will not find it in Revelation. This is not a term that gets used a lot in Scripture. Only John, and he uses it mostly right here where we are in 1 John. He touches on it in 2 John, I believe, right around chapter 5. I mean, excuse me, 2 John verse 5. But he does not um, uh, use the term in the same way that we do. When we hear or talk about the Antichrist in the end times, Generally, you're referring to passages like Matthew chapter 24 or Mark chapter 13, both of which talk about a false Christ. It is not the word for antichrist. It is the word for a false Christ, a false messiah, uh, if you will, that will come and speak about saving the world. Uh, Especially when you get into Mark chapter 13, pay attention to your wording there. Grammar matters in scripture because people were writing with, with intent and with purpose. And in Matthew chapter 13, uh, I mean Mark, excuse me, Mark chapter 13, Mark is using uh, grammatically what are known as near and far demonstratives. This is not going to be a lesson in English, but English matters. Uh, And if you are uh, an English teacher or an English student, I hope you appreciate what we're getting ready to talk about real briefly. But in Mark, uh, Jesus has been asked about this, uh, the temple being destroyed, which he has just mentioned uh, by his disciples, and he begins this monologue with them to explain what he's talking about. They are saying, is this a sign of the end of times? And Jesus talks about the temple coming down. He talks about false teachings. He talks about several things in that Mark 13 chapter, but pay close attention to his words. Near demonstratives are words in English like this and that, um, this and these. This and these show proximity, a closeness. If I wanna talk about something I'm holding in my hand, let's say I have a mug in my hand, uh, I would say this mug because it's in my hand. It is close to me. If that mug was across the room and I pointed to it, I would say that mug. The this is a near demonstrative, it is close. That is a far demonstrative, it is further away from me. And if you read Mark 13, you'll notice Jesus goes back and forth. So part of what Jesus is talking about in Mark 13 are things that are near, like the destruction of the temple, which will happen in 70 AD. Some of the things here he is talking about are more end times or eschatologically oriented. They are far demonstrative. So when you read Matthew 24, you read Mark 13, make sure you're parsing those words really well so you know know what Jesus is actually talking about. Also in Daniel, uh, we pull a lot of our, our antichrist concepts out of Daniel. He does not use that word again, but he uses the word little horn to discuss that final antichrist. And then Paul in 2 Thessalonians also talks about the man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the man of lawlessness. Again, not the word antichrist. So again, I want to make sure that we are all on the same page, that we understand who is being talked about in the passage that we're getting ready to talk about in 1 John. First John literally uses the word antichrist and he's using it to refer to these people, these Gnostics, who were once a part of the congregation that he is writing to, but now they have left them. They are secessionists. They have seceded from this group because their teachings are different. Uh, And if you go back and look at some of the, the ancient writings, one of the writers, Didymus the Blind, who was, who was blind since age four, and he was a theologian at the Church of Alexandria. He said this. He said, These things are not said of all, that this Antichrist language. It's not said about everyone who teaches a false doctrine, but only those who join a false sect after they have heard the truth. They are called Antichrist because they were once Christians and they have walked away from it. So John is again is not pointing to the antichrist that a lot of theologians believe from the end times that will signal uh, kind of the final big lie that we're supposed to uh, walk towards. Uh, but John is talking about present prophets, teachers, preachers, leaders who do not teach the truth. And that's who he's talking about in verse 18, and they have already come, and he is saying because of that, we know this is the last hour, and that is true because when you read sections like Mark twenty four, Mark 13 and Matthew 24, Jesus talks about false teachers will come about. So again, theologically, this is the last hour, chronologically, not so much, Um and then John says, they're the ones who went out from us because they did not belong to us. If they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. So he is pointing that their faith was not real. Uh, it was not genuine. They were allowed to be led astray. Uh, he doesn't really d- discern whether they, they had a strong belief at the very beginning or not. He is talking more of kind of how their beliefs uh, were, were not... Um, grounded in Jesus Christ uh, as the one and and only Son of God who came and and gave his life for us. He says in verse 20, you've been anointed by the Holy One. This is an interesting cause and effect statement. And because of that, you have all knowledge. And what he's trying to do is get the people to move away from their dependence on these false teachers and push their dependence back on the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the one uh, one of the gifts who uh, the Holy Spirit for us, or one of the works of the Holy Spirit for us, is that the Holy Spirit gives us interpretation. Uh, and he says that right there. He says in verse 21, uh, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And it's because you have the Holy Spirit. And he'll come back to that again in verse 27. Uh, but that's very important. And he's not writing to individuals. So let's don't be confused. He's not saying to each person, individual person, that you have the knowledge He's talking to them as a community. So when we are studying Scripture, we have access to the Holy Spirit. And that's very important. The Holy Spirit gives us spiritual eyes that we otherwise would not have. I know that when I became a believer, my ability to read and understand Scripture uh, improved greatly. I also know that when I try to describe Scripture to those who are unbelievers, They absolutely do not understand it. They cannot understand it, and it's because they don't have spiritual eyes. The Holy Spirit has to do a work in them before they can see what that Scripture really means. That same Holy Spirit, for those of us who are believers, has done that work in every one of us so that we can read and understand Scripture. Now, let's don't abuse that privilege, however, by taking Scripture, reading it for ourselves, determining how we want to interpret it based on our worldly beliefs or the lifestyles uh, that we prefer, but let's look at it in terms of is the Holy Spirit really directing our study and can we balance that against our community? There is something really uh, formative uh, and, and um, insightful about studying in groups and hearing the perspectives of others, especially those who are learned in Scripture. Some Scripture is easy. It's clear as can be. uh, Some scripture is deeper, and the context needs to be understood. The wording needs to be understood. So we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit interprets for us, but we should not abuse uh, what the Holy Spirit is doing for us. So then he goes on in 22 and talks about this liar who denies that Jesus is Christ and says this is the Antichrist. Notice John has changed from the plural to the singular. Right? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Now, again, this is not the end of times Antichrist that we know of. I think, however, it is speaking to a particular Gnostic teacher at the time, uh, a gentleman by the name of Serenthus, uh, Syrenthus, during this time, has uh, converted to Gnosticism. So, Syrenthus is teaching and writing about this Gnostic faith. And, and I think John is highlighting Syrenthus because his teachings have impacted John's community, his, the believers that follow John. And the, and the reason is that Syrenthus teaches a very specific concept in Gnosticism. Gnosticism, like any denomination, any belief, any faith, any religious community, it has variances from person to person about what they actually believe. It's not a single thought. There are different types of Gnostics, just like there were different types of Jewish beliefs in the first century. Not all Jews believed the exact same way. The Sadducees, the Temple Jews, very much focused on sacrifice, and they did not believe in the resurrection and the afterlife The Pharisees focused on the law. They did not focus as much on the sacrifice, and they did believe in a resurrection for people and an afterlife. The ascetic Jews separated themselves from the world and believed that they were supposed to be minimized as far as how they participated in the world. They lived at the Dead Sea, for example, in the Qumran area where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. The Zealots were a violent Jewish sect. So you had all these differences, just like you have differences in Christian believers today. Uh, Not only the different denominations, but different beliefs within the denominations. So Gnosticism was the same way. And Serenthus had a specific belief, and he taught that flesh was evil. And because flesh was evil, the spirit of the Redeemer could not abide in the flesh. It couldn't be flesh. Uh, it, it goes against what we what we teach as the full humanity and divinity of Christ. He believed that the Spirit of Jesus descended upon Jesus at Jesus's baptism through the form of the dove that we read about, and that the Spirit used the fleshly form to do ministry. Now that is not what we believe as Christians today. We believe that. Jesus was fully human and fully divine. He was God-made manifest so that we could see how we were supposed to live in a a kingdom manner, right? So, Serenthus, however, teaches that differently. And because of that, Serenthus also taught that when the fleshly Jesus was on the cross, the spirit, the redeeming spirit, actually left the body before God. The death of Jesus, and we do not believe that at all. We believe that Jesus fully participated in death uh, as the Son of God, as the Spirit of God, so that uh, the spirit and the flesh, uh, the flesh would die out clearly and and be done away with. But the spirit then uh, participates in the death by descending according to to our beliefs uh, and rising again. So. John is pointing out this particular belief, I think, in, in this verse, and is calling Serenthus the Antichrist in the moment. At least that's my interpretation. And it's because he's teaching specifically against what that community is believing in. And then John reinforces, if you deny the son and that the son is from the father, um, then you're, you're not living in the truth. He, again, points them back to, in verse 24, what they heard from the beginning. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, right? And what did they hear from the beginning? Well, they heard that that, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God made flesh and that they are to abide in that teaching. It's a public teaching. It is not a secret knowledge. It is a public knowledge. Uh, It is not something that is mystical in nature, Uh, how Jesus is made flesh. Yeah, we don't fully understand that. And and how he resurrects, we don't fully understand that. But the idea that our salvation goes through Jesus is not mystical in nature. And the Gnostics treated it that way. And John is saying, that's not what we do. John is saying, if you want to safeguard against the heresies of the day, then you need to abide in your original learning and you need to abide in the anointing you receive from the Holy Spirit. That kind of sums up, I think, what he's trying to say in those verses. All right? And then he reinforces it in verse 25, and this is what he has promised us, eternal life. If we abide and if we live in that learning, we're going to get eternal life through this, that eternal hope that we've talked about before, and that we referenced even 1 Peter, uh, as it is mentioned there as well. Then John goes on in uh, verse uh, 26 and says, I write these things to you concerning those who would deceive you. As for you, here's the anointing word again, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and so you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, abide in him. So John is saying, again, lean on that Holy Spirit. You've been anointed with the Spirit. The Spirit will convict you of what is true and what is not. And he says in uh, in verse 27 that it will teach you about all things. Now, I don't know if that's a literal all things. I'm not sure that we need to know all things. We need to know the things that are most important to our faith. But the Spirit has the ability to disclose all things, and I think that is extremely true, uh, and I think that's what John is trying to lean into. So that if when you're taught something that is false, if it feels false, if it feels like it is not fit uh, or does not fit in with overall story of God, then we need to question it. We need to test it. Is what we need to do, and he's going to talk about testing as we go forward. Um, So then uh, John goes on in verse 28, And now little children, term of affection, abide in him so that when he is revealed, we may have confidence and not be put to shame before him at his coming. So John adopts some Pauline language here, uh, some of the language that Paul uses when he says revealed uh, and his coming. This revealed word is uh, phanerosis, And the coming is parousia. And these are terms that we use for that second coming of Jesus Christ. And John is adopting them uh, to use in his language. And he says, if we are following him, if we are abiding in him, when that happens, we will not be put to shame. And when we hear that, we may think, well, gosh, we will not be embarrassed. That's great. But that's not what John's talking about. He's going deeper than that, actually, because... During the first century, you have a cultural uh, phenomenon called honor and shame. Uh, and you see this a lot when the Pharisees encounter Jesus uh, out in public. So their honor and shame culture meant that uh, you went through life trying to gain honor and trying to avoid shame. However, uh, there was a balancing act because there was, there was kind of what uh, some people call a net zero effect. If someone got honor... And that meant someone else had to get shame. There was only so much honor to go around, and if you got it, you were taking it from someone else, right? So when Jesus is out in public, and if you notice, any time that the Pharisees confront Jesus to quiz him, it's in public. The only Pharisee who does not confront Jesus in public is Nicodemus, and he confronts Jesus in private because he really wants to know the answer to what this born-again thing means and who Jesus really is. But the other Pharisees confront Jesus in public because they're calling him out. And they're trying to trick him so that he will be shamed and they will get honor. And the people that would gather around them become kind of the, the jury, the audience and the jury about honor and shame. And if they agreed with one side and they would applaud and comment, that person got the honor and they would begin following them. So anytime you see in Scripture, Pharisees confronting Jesus in public, know that they're trying to shame him to take away his followers. But they have no idea who Jesus is, and they don't know that he already has all the answers. And he does, because Jesus always wins in his discussion with them. He's a great debater and a great teacher, and he shows that in every encounter. So that gets us to the end of chapter 2. And you're uh, thinking, Steve, we got one more verse, and we do. Verse 29. But verse 29 is really a transition in chapter 3. And so we will treat it as such as we approach 1 John again in the next podcast section. Thanks again. Remember, stay in the Word. Keep this journey going. And if you enjoy what you're learning uh, and it's meaningful to you, let other people know about this podcast. We would appreciate it greatly. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in to Lessons with Pastor Steve Sellers. Check back soon on all podcasting platforms and on YouTube for the next available episode. This series is produced by Riley Moncrief for Camino Church. To learn more about our church, like us on Facebook at Camino Church or visit us online at CaminoChurch.com. We'll see you next time.